so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our special Patreon-sponsored bonus episode of Citizen Dame. We're talking about On the Basis of Sex. Yay! I find it funny <laughs> that our bonus episodes just seem to involve tall, blonde, hot men. It's a coincidence. It's all a coincidence. <laughs> Between this and Sorry to Bother You and Bad Times at the El Royale, I don't know how any of those connect. <laughs> we have good taste. What can mm. you say? Yeah. <laughs> They're all really good movies. Well, that <coughs> that too. <laughs> I think good things. So yeah, I would think we would have picked more like cash cows, but I think we just went with you know hot, hot, tall guys. That works for me. Uh, On the basis of sex is directed by Mimi Leader. It stars Felicity Jones, Army Hammer, Lauren's favorite actor Justin Theroux, <laughs> and a bunch of other white dudes that just want to smush feminism under their foot. Er. <laughs> it tells the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as she sets out to tell the her the first sex discrimination case that she she worked on and how gender discrimination is real. It is real and I love that in 2019 we're still debating a lot of the same issues that the movie lays out. Before we get into reviews, can I just add one fact that of I found course. really interesting cuz um you know, I did back in December, I got the opportunity to interview some of the cast and also the director. <laughs> well, one of the one of the interviews I did was with Daniel Steepleman, who's the screenwriter. And we were talking about why he wanted to write this because it's actually his first screenplay. And he is the nephew of Marty and Ruth Ginsburg. And he is actually he's the the son of Martin Ginsburg's sister. That's his relationship into the family, but he grew up with Uncle Marty and Aunt Ruth, and um, and so it was at Martin's funeral in 2010 that a friend of theirs got up and started speaking. Um, you know, people are sharing memories and stuff, and this friend got up and started talking and was talking specifically about this one particular case from the early 70s, and that it was the only case that Ruth and Marty, who are both very good lawyers, the only case the two of them had ever argued together. And he got really interested in that. And so he, he pondered it for a while, for probably about a year, I guess, before he actually sat down and just start writing the screenplay. And when he went to talk to Aunt Ruth about the story and saying that he wanted to turn this into a film, she was at first very confused. She's like, I fought way bigger cases than this. I argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Why are you so interested in this one? And he told her it was because it was her and Uncle Marty together. And it was because the, the movie that he wanted to write wasn't specifically about this case, but it was the bigger picture. It was about their marriage and about how they supported each other and how they together were able to 
further the case for equal rights. And that was when she got really excited about it and was totally on board with with letting him do this. Although he says that, isn't that so sweet? But it's funny because he says that her exact words were, well, if that's what you want to do with your time. Precious. <laughs> so great. That is <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, I just wanted to share that you know that's it kind of the so genesis of how true. this movie right? came like, about. That's what she would say. Well, I you know let's I think let's do a kind of round robin about all of us seeing the movie. We've all seen it, and we'll go in order of who who saw it most recently, which I think that would be Lauren. So, Lauren, what did you think about this overall? Uh, yes, yeah, so overall, I liked it. Uh, I really enjoyed all of the performances. I I liked the fact that it's. Um, I like you know like you were saying, uh, Karen. I like the fact that it's that a lot of it really is about their marriage, and it's about him supporting her, and to a degree, her supporting him. I mean, particularly in some of the earlier things, and um, but actually showing showing their home life as being part of what she's arguing about that the roles of men and women are changing, that things are actually different now than they were even when they were growing up and that they needed to be different and that they needed to move forward. Uh, I, I thought it was very, just a very well acted, well written uh, film. I liked the fact that by the time you actually get to the court case, which is in some ways a very dry case and is not as potentially interesting or cinematic as some of the, the later arguments that she made. Um, it's still, very much about uh there's you, you still understand the narrative stakes and you still understand why this is so important and so by the time you get to there and it's been built up so much by the time you actually get to the case you're like okay i understand why this is so important and why this is such a groundbreaking moment um yeah i i just i enjoyed it and i enjoyed the fact that we got to see army hammer cooking and taking care of children and standing around in an apron <laughs> Oh, so magical. We're we're gonna go on about Army Hammer in a second. Uh, Kim, what did you think about it overall? I I loved it. I saw it probably a little before Christmas, and I I was very open online that I started crying probably about halfway through, and it kept going throughout the whole rest of the film. I pretty much had figured I would like it, and I came out absolutely loving it. Um, I, I echo everything Lauren said, incredibly well-written, incredibly well-performed. I was really legitimately surprised with how much I liked Felicity Jones in it. Um, I was pretty iffy on her going in. I've always felt, felt her cusping at good performances, but never quite there. And she just nailed it. I was worried about her in a performance, especially like this with, you know, the complexities of the character, complexities of, you know, the role, the time period. And she brought everything she needed to. Um, I was particularly interested. I loved the depiction of the time period. We still see so little in terms of the early 50s and the 60s. And that was really an era I studied a lot in school, kind of gender and sexuality during that period. And seeing, you know, pre prior to that, I think the only thing I can think of is Mad Men and that, you know, we saw some interesting gender roles, but just showing women during this period and the battles women were fighting before that traditional second wave feminism coming around in the late 60s, it's always been my belief that, you know, you know, obviously second wave feminism didn't come out of nowhere and that it was building and this movie shows 
where this came from. The battles women were fighting before the late sixties. And I thought it was brilliant. Can't or Karen, what about you? So, well, you and I saw it together <laughs> the okay. first time. Nice. Um, but it's funny because I went into this not expecting it to be much. I have not really been a fan of Felicity Jones. Um, my opinions of Army Hammer are fairly well documented on this podcast. And <laughs> this is why I had you go before me. And so I went into it just being like, yeah, okay. The only thing about it I was really excited for was Mimi Leader returning to the big screen as a director because I love the films that she did late 90s, um, I think early 2000. I think maybe it was in 2000 was Pay It Forward. And, um, you know, I, I really have enjoyed her work and I've liked her television work too. But to see her back on the big screen, I was looking forward to that. And I was interested in the case because I am interested in Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I was interested in the story, but I was not expecting it to be much of anything. And as we were watching it, it actually happened for me pretty early on where I just really did get sucked in to this world. I got pulled in so fast and I was, I really enjoyed it from probably the, the moment where they're at the dinner, the famous Dean's dinner where the Dean asks, you know, why are you here in a seat that could be, that could have gone to a man. And just the way that that scene was handled and, everything about it the the other the way that the other women there respond to Ruth's response and and oh, her dress in that scene is so gorgeous and I just I really liked it and then she goes home to her husband and it was like yeah from from that moment I was just like oh damn it Army Hammer why do you have to be so beautiful oh, and <laughs> and yeah it, it what ends up unfolding through the course of this movie yeah you can look at this as oh it's just another standard biopic and in some ways it kind of is but it's it's got a point of view that doesn't often enough get depicted this is you know kind of a standard biopic about a person but we don't see these types of movies made about women and we don't see these types of movies made about couples and I really appreciated the fact that Mimi Leader took a fairly typical uh, setup to tell a very extraordinary story. And I think that she did so beautifully. I think the performances are great. Um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody afterwards about casting Felicity Jones and Army Hammer, two people who I've never loved as actors, but they are beautiful people. And I remember talking to someone about how, yeah, that was a little bit generous in the casting. And then I was at, over here in LA at the Skirball Museum, they have this amazing Notorious RBG exhibit right now. And they have all these old pictures from when they were at Harvard and in their early careers and stuff. And I was looking at them and I'm like, you know, that casting was actually pretty good. You know, and it was it was surprising to me, but I just I really enjoyed it. I love the story. I love the way that it's told. I love the production design, the costumes, the cinematography, and I just I I loved the experience of watching this movie. And I the second time I saw it, I got to bring a friend's daughter. She's my like unofficial niece, you know. She's a teenage girl, and getting to have that experience with her and getting to introduce her to to RBG was was really special 
And I love how much she as a woman has inspired a whole new generation of kids. And I love that this story gives people the opportunity to see that she didn't just start existing in 1993 when she was nominated to the Supreme court, that she had this entire life and this huge career before that. So I I love this movie and I'm really happy that it's there. So I've seen this movie twice now. I would go see it more if I had time or a screener that two men have promised me and they failed on it multiple times and they will be nameless because they don't deserve to be named here, but they know who they are and I'm waiting by the door for my screener. Just saying. Um, so I've paid to see this. Um, and I this was my most anticipated, one of my most anticipated last year. And so the bar was set very high for me. I feel that Mimi Leader is one of the great examples of a director put into quote-unquote director jail purely for being a woman. Yes, you can blame it on making pay it forward, but I'm sorry, how many bombs has Robert Zemeckis made in the last decade? So I, I always chill for, for Mimi Leader as being a director that should have been making a lot more movies than what she has been, but she's been doing fantastic work in television. Um, if you watch The Leftovers, which Lauren hasn't, um, <laughs> you can <laughs> Never. see uh, some of the Never. amazing work. If if we have a Patreon goal, we will get to, and one day you will watch those episodes. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> wow. That was, that was ominous. <laughs> if we, if, no, if we get... That was that if was a maniacal. If we get to cackle. that Patreon goal, I will absolutely watch those episodes because that will be fucking amazing. Like I will be so happy about that. I'll be just like, fine, I will watch those episodes. You heard it, listeners. Up your goals. Exactly. Um, <laughs> up your contribution. So, so when they when when I heard that there was a, a Mimi leader directed story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that was going to start Army Hammer and Justin Thoreau, it was like, holy shit, the gods have blessed me with everything I've ever wanted in a movie. Okay, feminism, both my boys, female director that needs to have another hit, um, all my things. And I was not disappointed. Um, I said this, I think when we talked about Wonder Woman, that there are certain very small, imperceptible things that a, a woman director brings through the camera. And I think that so much of what, let's let's say it, the male critics have been pointing out as detriments to this movie are really just things that as a woman, you're really appreciating that some, somebody else understands. And, and a lot of that also goes to Daniel Stiepelman, who is the screenwriter. The, the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has this job that does take a lot of time out of her day and no one resents her for it. You know, there's not this Aaron Brockovich moment where her kids look at her and they're like, screw you, mom. You ruined my life because you work hard. You know. Um, Can I add another funny story? Sure. <laughs> Sorry, I learned a lot that press day. Um, again, when I was talking to Daniel, he was talking about how he asked um, Jane, who is his cousin. He asked her, like, "Did you ever feel neglected by your parents growing up? Because they were always off doing all these big things." And she said, "I wish they had neglected me." Exactly. She's like, they were there all the time. They were so involved. And if yeah. you read, you know, if you watch the RBG documentary or you read books, I mean, they were incredibly present people. And I think that the, the movie shows that so perfectly, just the way they're there for their children, the way that Ruth did her schoolwork and her husband's at the same time, because there was no 
easy, you know, the, no nobody sympathizing with this family that's going through this horrific thing. Um, right down to Sam Waterston playing the villain, saying to her, you know, <laughs> well, it sucks that your husband had cancer and he wants to go off and do his career. You should stay here. And your husband should just, like, send you money, okay? Um, I mean, these very little things, the way the camera always keeps her in focus, um, that I really appreciated. And I think the relationship between Ruth and Marty, which I've, I've talked about on the show, is my relationship goals, you know? Um, the fact that she's like, as Lauren would say, you know, hold my purse, I gotta go fight the patriarchy. And, and Marty's like, I will hold your purse. You go out there and you kick some ass. Um, I, I love that. You know, I love that there's this mutual give and take and that when they have an argument, she can look at him and explain the ar- the reason she's mad and he can be like, okay, I'm gonna try to change that. Like, it's it's light, and yes, you can call it fluffy, but I think that what makes this movie work is that everything feels authentic. It feels like how real people talk to each other. I think, and it's something that I, I also saw with, like, Crazy Rich Asians. You know, there's not this need to, like, exaggerate emotion. It's just letting moments be moments um so i loved it and i love the fact are we oh, one. oh i was just gonna say are we spoil are we talking spoilers we should be talking spoilers we will i i will give out my final thought and then we will go into spoiler territory so okay and i will say justin Thoreau in corduroy and elbow patches oh dear lord <laughs> oh my god knew exactly what did you and porn stash the creepiest uh, you know mustache <laughs> total, and, a, I would and an asshole he's he is such an asshole <laughs> yes he is like yeah. he's such an asshole he really I is. the point going like well i know what justin Thoreau looks like now and he's a fucking dick <laughs> but that was the point yes, was he, he was this, he was yeah. supposed to be this guy who you know on the one hand he's out there fighting for people and on the other, he's still this, as Justin Thoreau actually said to me, he's still a Neanderthal and he just doesn't even know his own blind spots as far as how he treats and looks at other people, which is actually what attracted him to the role because he likes to play people that are not him. <laughs> and the porn stash was working. Put him in a 1970s set whatever okay it could be about porn i don't care i don't care it worked for me um so we're gonna we're gonna talk spoilers if you don't want to know any spoilery moments about on the basis of sex don't listen further than this but you should go see it and then come back and listen to the rest of the episode um because it's amazing we all recommend it so you've been warned spoiler time where do we want to start well the reason that i asked if we're gonna do spoilers is because as you were talking about you know the conversations that they have as a couple the one scene that really stood out to me that I just thought was so beautifully composed, so beautifully shot and really well acted. And like, if there was an avenue where Felicity Jones was going to get nominated for an Oscar, I could totally see this would be the scene they would play for her at the ceremony. And it's the one where they have just left that party. They're walking down the street and they're talking and he's telling her, Oh yeah, this is great. You get to inspire the next generation. You're doing good things. And she stops and says, but that's what I wanted to do. And in that moment, she's getting to express and that she's had to hold in for so long because she hasn't had that that real opportunity to just let out like, hey, I'm actually really disappointed with the direction that my career is headed. And also his response and his reaction to what she said as he realizes like, oh, she's been she's been content and settled into this existence, but I need to help 
get her to where she wants to be in whatever way I need to do that. And I just, I loved that moment so that was much. A real, that was a beautiful was really scene powerful. for him too, definitely. Well, and I think, mm-hmm. I think that's where I yeah. say that I, I love how authentic the, the arguments are because I think leading up to that scene, they're talking about how they're at a party and he he changes he has these moments where he kind of placates her when they're at these parties and it's like oh have you met my wife and that's it that's just like the the little small small moment and she calls him out on it she tells him you know you become this guy that has to trot your wife out and i'm not allowed to be intelligent and they have this this real discussion it's not an argument but it it is something that annoys her um, and I think you see that a lot throughout the movie, which is fantastic. You know, when um, when Jane, uh, who's played by Kaylee Spaney in this movie, is having an argument with her mom and and Marty goes to talk to her about it. He says, you know, do you want or do you want your mom to not be smart? And she says, no, I just don't want her. To, she doesn't want to be constantly in competition, feel that she's dumber than her mother. But they are very similar to each other. And I love that that arc progresses so beautifully to Ruth realizing that her and her daughter are very similar and that's because of how her daughter has been raised and that's how because of how Ruth was raised by her own mother who was also very obsessed with making Ruth incredibly intelligent so I love how the movie the characters build on this history of women having to be smarter than the men and how that's often used against them but there's no resentment for it you know the characters just like talk to each other about stuff and that solves it. There's no, you know, need for like high stakes and, you know, is is she going to have to make this choice between the court case and her family? Like, no, she gets everything. And, and also just to build off of that, um, to talk about the the way the generations are represented and the whole thing that there's, and I'm, I'm struggling to actually remember the line, but there's this whole thing that you have to take. Um, it doesn't change based upon the weather of the day, but upon the climate, it's like the climate of, the era or something like that the era yeah. um and and that's something that that's like a refrain that keeps on at, that sort of builds uh, throughout the film but it also is an issue about generations and about the way the generations relate to each yeah. other. and then you have mm-hmm. the generations of female uh activists and female lawyers you've got the um uh and i'm blanking on her name right now but the kathy bates character who is introduced very 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 late but is this major female lawyer who failed in some ways but she didn't fail because she laid the groundwork for the cases that ruth bader ginsburg would eventually fight and and then you've got her daughter who is a a completely different generation and who's experiencing it in a different generation you've got the students that she works with um and all of that and so you've got this this building of these generations of women that you know one generation may not be the ones to, we're not going to be the ones to fix everything, but the next generation will fix some of the things that we didn't. And the next generation, and we have to teach them how to be like that. And it's, it's really wonderful. And it's, it's wonderful that it is about women and that it is about the way that women relate to one another and the way that, that men can be there and be supportive and be present and use their power for good also. Yeah, I, the Kathy Bates character, who she plays Dorothy Kenyon, yeah, there you go. Um, is being used in a lot of the marketing, which I find very interesting because she's only in it for about seven minutes, maybe, maybe. Uh, and she's yeah, great. I would I agree. Mean, it's, it's definitely impactful, and I think that's- It's impactful. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's Kathy Bates, yeah. Like, I was just going to say, yeah, the fact that it is Kathy Bates. And Kathy Bates is, I think for a lot of us, you go back to like Molly Brown in Titanic. And she's 
cultivated this persona as being a quote-unquote strong woman. And I think that she really elevates what could have been a very stock kind of cameo type of role. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I think that, that works towards everybody's benefit in this movie. Even someone like Sam Waterston, who plays the <laughs> villain in this movie. Him and, him and Steven Root play the villains in this movie, which I find, oh, Steven find very Root. funny. But I also love when Kathy Bates, when Dorothy goes to see Mel Wolf, which is Justin Thoreau's character. And um, I think it's so funny because she's like, yeah, I got this from this this law professor, you know, maybe you should look look her up. And he, she doesn't know that they go way back, that they know each other already. But I just, I love that she, I, I think what I, what I really like about that scene is, yeah, Mel Wolf is an asshole. Mel Wolf is this, you know, this guy who is totally sexist, even though he probably thinks he isn't. And Dorothy knows this about him, but she also knows that part of what's going to get things moving is to work with people like him as much as they can, like to get things moving because he, he has the power of the ACLU behind him. And she understands that. And I, I just, I really like that scene where she's, He's trying to push back on her, but she's basically telling him, this is what you're going to do. I do love that that moment, too, gives us the needed exposition to understand why he is an asshole. Because she comes <laughs> in and she's like, yeah, you're yeah. so upset that you defended draft dodgers <laughs> and you lost. And now everybody thinks you're a loser. And I was just like, <laughs> yes, you tell him, Kathy Bates. But I love you, Justin Thoreau. I apologize. Um, <laughs> well, I think, too, there's there's not this, like, us versus them dichotomy that you often get with these with movies about gender is that everybody there's just kind of this right and wrong i think it's great that the the first case that ruth is defending is about a guy who just wants to take care of his mom and he he doesn't get to benefit from the tax incentive for caregivers because he's not a woman because no man ever thought that a bachelor would want to care for his mother and not be married and you you hear that story and you're just like wait what (laughs) that was a thing and i think it's great that we get that scene with all of her students where they're going through the laws and they're like we can't work in the mines and we can't do this and we can't do that and you're just like I think the intent is to make you think, oh, how how things have gotten better. And really, for me watching it, I was like, yes, we can work in minds now. But, you know, what what else is still on the books that, as we're seeing, is now incredibly outdated? Well, and what really stood out to Sorry, Kim, I know you were trying to talk. Go ahead. The film makes a very smart decision to not tackle that us versus them mentality. It's looking at, like Kristen, you just said, make, looking at it as a right or wrong issue. We're looking at it as a human rights issue. We're all equal. Men and women are both equal. The fact that this case focuses on a man being discriminated against is such a really powerful choice. You know, it's showing that feminism isn't about, you know, women being better than men. It's about us all being equals. We're all people. We should be treating each other equally. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me, especially in that scene where she is going through those laws with her students, is I was really thinking about the fact that this this case happened only about five years before I was born. This happened in the same decade <laughs> where my life began. And it's so interesting to me to realize how um, how much things were still 
this this way in like in my, when my mom was in high school and in the early years of her getting married and it's funny i actually asked her like when she got when she and my dad got married if he had to um be on her bank account or if she was able to get her own account and stuff she didn't remember um but she just kind of looked at me like well of course your dad and i were on the same bank account like duh why wouldn't we be but i just thought you know it's so so interesting that that was that was a requirement like at one point and not that long ago and i think that's why it really struck me that this happened before i was born but it's not that long ago and and like you say kristen there are still some of these laws that exist that haven't been struck down or have you know continued to to be on the books for one reason or another but even the ones that did go away even though the even the ones that were fixed this is like we know people who lived under these laws like we live with people who lived under these laws and it's just mind-blowing to me this isn't something that we can just be well, far this, removed from you know we talked about it i think with something like black klansmen where we were talking about the pointed allusions to the modern day you know, like, oh, no one would elect that type of person for president. The joke is that, ha, 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 look at what we have now. Um, and you do, mm -hmm. you don't get, the, I think, those pointed critiques. They're more subtle critiques. You know, like when um, there, there's this really evocative moment where the camera is skewed and it's showing Sam Waterston and Stephen Root and the other guy who's the attorney talking about you need to, and, the, and they're all in close up. And it's about how you need to remind them that what's at stake is yeah. the destruction of the American family. And and if you, you watch that scene, you're just like, oh, my God, you know, that's that's everything that I think we've dealt with as a country since, you know, the 80s. Everything, any any progress is going to lead to the disintegration of the, the American family. It's something that has not gone away. And. And then you have even little subtle things, these little subtle us versus them moments, you know, like um, during the, the mock trial that they're doing um, when when Justin Theroux's character is being a douchebag, but he's talking about how much she likes the food and he thinks that Ruth is the one that cooked it, but we know that it wasn't her, it was it was Marty. Those like little subtle things, I think, is we've all interacted with with men on whether on social media or um just in general, these kind of subtle jabs that keep happening where it's characters that say like, oh, I'm definitely an ally. I'm quote unquote down with feminism. But they have these moments where it's just like, mm, you still have a lot of work to do. I love how the movie really subtly critiques the current day without really making it a big thing. It's yeah, it repeats some of the rhetoric, like you say, though, some of the rhetoric that we've heard. Um, and that we continue to hear and it, it that gets repeated not just by you know in the in sort of the macrocosm by people like the republican leadership and like our president and things like that but also in the microcosm about the the my, the microaggressions that you're talking about the little like oh i'm going to assume that you were the one that cooked things i'm going to assume that you were the one i'm going to assume that you want to have children that you want to be pregnant that there are all of these things that you want because you're female or because or that i'm supposed to want or that he's supposed to want because he's male and and we keep on, and we see that throughout the film, that you get that. And that is where the film begins to get all that extra resonance. They're just like, yeah, I recognize this. And I think it's, I, I have a feeling that it's particularly resonant for women because we've become a little more attuned to recognizing these kind of things and being like, yeah, I, I know guys like that. I know guys like Mel. 
um, who in some ways are on our side, but in some ways really aren't. And we have to deal with them and we have to figure out maybe how to educate them and how to help them be better. Um, and uh, like you were, I think, Kim, like you were saying, the, the fact that the film really does emphasize the, uh, the, the fact that, the, that patriarchy and that these laws are hurting everybody. It isn't just men. It isn't just women. It is everyone that that has to live under them. That it's not good for men to not be expected to be caregivers. It's not good for women to not be expected to go out to work. It's not good for us to be unequal because it doesn't help anybody. The only people that it helps are the people who already have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And that's what the film points out. And it does it really subtly sometimes and very blatantly sometimes. And it works. And it does it in a way that you don't you don't come out of it being like, oh, everything is terrible. It's like, no, everything is good, actually, because there are good men and there are good women and we need to continue to working towards a more equal society. You know, Lauren, I love that you just said that because that's one thing I love about the way the film ends is even though it ends with one case going the right way and you realize they still have so much work to do, there's also this, like, it ends on a very hopeful note. Like, this worked. We're going to keep going. And if and when you start to think about, wow, they've made a lot of changes. We still have a lot of, a long way to go, but they've made a lot of changes. And they did a lot in the next, you know, 25 years or so until she was nominated to the Supreme Court. And it's, I love that it has this very hopeful tone to it in the end. I, I really, I thought that was such a great way to, to close it out. Well, I did want to transition to talking about characters briefly, because I, I know we talked briefly about Felicity Jones. And, and you really want to talk about Army Hammer, we know. We do. Um, but Felicity <laughs> Jones, I think is, I as, as somebody, uh, one of, I forget which one of you laid it out, she's really good um, in this. I mean, I don't think she's gotten her due to really show her acting. Um, she's literally the best part of Rogue One for me. Uh, but but I was a little skeptical. This was a role that was originally given to Natalie Portman, and there's been a lot of criticism about the fact that they, the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Jewish, and so is Natalie Portman, and and Felicity Jones is not. Um, but I think Felicity Jones does a really great job with a very tall order, um, even though that neither her or Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> is very tall. Uh, I mean, Ginsburg herself gives her seal of approval, so I think that that says a lot. <laughs> exactly. Um, she does a great job with hiding her accent for the most part. There are moments, I think, that slip, but she does get the Ruth Bader Ginsburg cadence. You know, she she gets it. She gets it. And, and where, you know, other biopics... <laughs> with other people with big teeth that I complain about um, were just kind of imitation. Um, I think, I think Felicity Jones does something really subtle with her acting, you know, even in those moments where she's going out on job interviews and she has that job interview with the guy and he, th you think he's going to hire her. And then she, he looks at her, she looks down and you realize that he, she's hot. Like that's the problem at that point that, you know, the, and he says to her, the other wives might get jealous. Just watching the, the range of emotions go through her head where she just like wants to scream at this guy, but she can't. And then there's also that like veiled, like 
is this going to turn creepy or something? Um, I, I just think she does a really great job conveying that that bubbling that that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to have had, that constant like seething, trying to keep it all down because the world is just so fucking unfair. If anybody has anything else to add to that, no, I I agree. I I think that she I think that she did a great job, and like you say, the that scene in particular. So interesting that you bring up that scene because that scene in particular, I think I felt that in my like the pit of my stomach because you can see it, you can almost see it coming. And because I'm suddenly like, I don't think she gets hired by this guy. And then it's like, oh no, oh. And so it's like, it's all of those little things. You know, you're too pretty, you're not pretty enough. You're too smart, you're not smart enough. All of those that back and forth that women go through. And she does convey it really well that she's sitting there and you're like she's got to be angry and she's got to be upset. She's got to want to like scream and cry at the same time. And she can't do any of that. And, and yet you can feel that emotion that she's going through. And, and even though she's playing a character that in some ways is, is um, supposed to be somewhat closed off, that it doesn't show her emotions a great deal. Uh, and so the few times when it does come through, it's very powerful. And I, I thought she did a great job. Yeah, I, I don't have the same sort of resistance to Felicity Jones that I think some people have. Um, I liked her in Rogue One. I've liked her in the few things that I've seen her in. Um, she's British. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not. Okay, who cares? Uh, actually, I'm not convinced that, that Natalie Portman would have... I don't think she would have done a better job, and I'm not entirely convinced she would have the same gravitas at the end of the day. I think the problem with Natalie Portman having done the role is that she's this maybe sounds wrong, but, and this may not come out the way I really mean it, but I think she's too big, too showy. Um, and maybe that's just the recency of having seen Fox Lux where she's this really big character. And I think that you need someone who can bring out the really subtle things about Ruth. And I mean, Natalie Portman is a great actress. I'm not saying she's not, but I just, I think that this needed someone who was a little quieter a little, um, a little more, uh, keeping things close to to the vest, where, um, which is what I think Felicity Jones did such a great job with. Is is she? I mean, she's definitely loud and vocal when she needs to be, but she also keeps things so close and and does keep herself so. Um, you know, she resists being really emotional in a lot of ways. And I, I think she did a beautiful job with that. Well, I was just going to say, jumping back to the scene in the office where the, the uncomfortable scene that we were just talking about, I wanted to mention the point of this being a female filmmaker and how they were able to really lead her working together with Jones were really able to wrap their heads around the uncomfortable nature of that scene and all the complexities to what um, I would say a male filmmaker would see as a throwaway scene. I don't know if a male director would bring that level of intensity yet subtlety to a scene like that. Yeah. Well, and there are other things I think that Mimi Leader did that a male director would have done completely differently. Like when we were talking before about um, when Marty has cancer and Ruth's taking care of him and going to their classes, both of their classes. And she's so that scene where he's laying on the couch, he's come home from the hospital and she's typing his paper. Like he's dictating it and she's typing it. And then he falls asleep and Jane has woken up. So she goes in takes care of Jane and comes back out. Marty's asleep on the couch. So then she sits down and just swaps out. Okay. She's, she can't work on his work now. So now she's going to do hers. 
And I love the way it just kind of is so matter of fact about this is just the reality of her situation right now. Whereas I honestly, I think if a male director had been doing this, they would have really it would have been an exasperated sigh. Yes, and it would have really dwelled on on how long suffering she is and all the stuff that she has to do and how she must be so exhausted. But it's like, but because it's a woman telling this story, she understands this is just what women do. They just do what needs to be done. They don't complain about it mostly. They just do it and just get on with it, you know? Yeah. And and I love those things that you would not have gotten with a male director. So we should talk about Ermie Hammer, a.k.a. the guy that Karen <laughs> now realizes why I love him. This is somewhere else where we can talk about the fact that we have a female director and the way that the camera looks at Ermie Hammer. <laughs> exactly. You know, I find it great that, like, gay men and women know how to film Ermie Hammer to, like, Guy Ritchie. I'm not going to assume anything about Guy Ritchie's sexuality, but he also knows how to film Army Hammer. I don't know. Go figure. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I I tell a lot of people like I want I want a Martin Ginsburg. I need a shirt that says "Where's my Marty?" Okay, because I want one. Because Martin Ginsburg was just like awesome. Because like his wife wanted to go to Switzerland to study the law, and he was like, "You go." You go to Switzerland, I'll watch our kids, and I will cook dinner. And he just, he did all these amazing things with nothing more than, like, a smile and a you're welcome, okay? And I think that Army Hammer perfectly embodies that. You know, he's he's supportive when he needs to be supportive. He's firm when he needs to be. And none of it is, like, stepping over his wife. You know, when, when others say that, oh, you know, Marty needs to take point on this case because he's more... They don't say it, but the intent is that he's more likable. You know, he just says, like, no, this is her case. And even the subtle, like, asides that they have when she, like, passes over the papers to him at the table. And he just, like, looks at her and he's, like, so sad because he thinks that she's given up and she feels that she's less than. I, I just love how the movie lets him be a presence. I, I wrote an article about this and I said... I think it's it does what what David O. Russell's Joy wanted to do but failed at regarding relationships between um, spouses, which is that he's a present person in the narrative, but he is not the narrative. You know, he never takes over. There's never this like the way the camera fi films him. It's never about him overshadowing his wife. He's just a presence and that's good enough and i think the criticisms about how oh army hammer doesn't have enough to do in this movie well then you're not fucking paying attention i think part of the problem is that people aren't used to seeing what a real supportive that's spouse looks right like there. yeah exactly. or, or they are but that spouse is always female yeah but even the but even this the female you know the why the supportive wives that we see it's usually that trope of the wife by the phone or by the radio or you know it's yeah. They're they're very rarely actually involved in the immediate plot of the film. And when you look at this, I don't think I, I know people are saying he doesn't have a lot to do, but I think their real criticism, what they're afraid to say, is that they see him as as a weak husband because of the fact because, that he's he's literally at home with an apron. That's probably yeah, you know what they're thinking. He's literally at home with the apron, chopping up the, the celery, looking so hot, yeah, and they're threatened they're by it. Sexually, of <laughs> <laughs> they're they're see, they're seeing him as feminized. They're seeing him as, as being like, oh, he's the he's the wife, yeah, you know, as it were. 
and and I I like but I here's I like the fact that the that that's wrong. I like the fact that the film doesn't actually do that. And if you really pay attention to what the film does, is that yeah, he's got on an apron and he takes care of the kids and he cooks dinner and things like that. A lot of the time, because that's something that he likes to do. It's not like he's being forced to do it. He's like, I li- he likes to cook, so he cooks. He's a good cook. He's a much better cook than his wife, so he's the one that does it. You know, he is looking after the kids because he knows that his wife is going off to do other things. Meanwhile, he's also a very successful lawyer. He's very successful in his career. He manages, I mean, he manages to get through cancer and with his wife's help to actually mm-hmm. get his law degree and all of that. That's that's not a weak man in in any way. It's simply a man who does not see any of these quote typically feminine things as being in any way emasculating. That's a man who knows that he's masculine and that is okay with that. And casting Army exactly. Hammer, who is such a masculine screen presence in mm-hmm. that role, yeah. is really effective. I, I hope I hope the movie does something towards redefining masculinity i think that that's a really great balance the movie has where it's saying that as as women get more power men's power just has to taper off or balance you know there has to be this balancing of the scales and no one's losing anything but we're finding this cohesion right it's not that it's not that her strength becomes his weakness it's just they they are able to do that together and their relationship reflects the narrative of the the film which is that when we are equal we all benefit yeah he he benefits from the fact exactly he considers himself her equal and she considers her and she considers herself his equal that you know that means Mm -hmm. that because they have that kind of a relationship and because they are both progressive enough to understand that he can cook and it's not emasculating. He can look after the kids and it's not emasculating. She can go out to work and it doesn't emasculate him in any way. It means, and it doesn't masculinize her in any way. It doesn't mean that she's too male in some sense. It basically says that these roles that we occupy are, they're just roles. They're things that you have to do as a part of life. You have to make food. You have to take care of the kids. That's something you have to do. And it doesn't really matter if the man enjoys doing that. There's nothing there's nothing inherently unmasculine about that any more than if the woman enjoys doing it, there's nothing inherently too feminine about it. They're such a strong couple working together. And that goes completely to the theme of the film, the, 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 the theme of equality, the theme of working together. And I mean, going back to the discussion on supportive spouse, you know, the, the woman by the phone, that's, that isn't this character because they're they're a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a union. And these two show it in an era where we often don't see that. Just think back to Leave it to Beaver. Think back to, you know, Bewitched, My Three Sons, what have you. And the trope of the little woman staying at home existing purely for her husband's work. That's not what we're not used to seeing this. We're not used to seeing partners and couples like this on screen. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. makes probably particularly male critics so uncomfortable. Yeah. Can I share one more story that I got from Daniel? (laughs) This is one that I just like, I absolutely loved it. And um, he said that this is kind of one of those legendary family stories. So I guess, um, their son i can't i'm blanking on his name right now but so they had jane and then they had a son jack maybe anyway 
I thought it was I thought it was James. James, yes, James, you're right. So he used to get in trouble a lot as a kid. Like he got in all kinds of trouble at school all the time. And so they would call Ruth at Rutgers and um you know, the school would call, oh, we need to talk to you about James. We need to talk to you about James. Like, she'd get these phone calls all the time. And finally, one day, she was really busy. She was in the middle of stuff. And she just got really frustrated. She goes, you know, James has two parents. You want us to call Mr. Ginsburg? Yeah. At work? And she's like, yes. And so they call Mr. Ginsburg at work and ask him to come down to the school and meet with them. So he goes to the school and he's in this office and it's like three three people like the principal and two you know people like two instructors or something from the school and so they start telling him that um i guess this was a really old school that had an old manual elevator and um so they tell him that james had stolen the elevator <laughs> like he hopped in and was just giving himself rides up and down or something so then marty goes how far could he get with an elevator? And <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently the meeting didn't go at all the way they expected it to. And he was just like, you brought me down here because my son was able to use an elevator that you did not have locked up. Like he's in trouble for your negligence. And um, according to Daniel, there were significantly fewer calls to this from the school after Mr. Ginsburg went down there. So it's just kind of one of those funny things. And that's yeah, yeah that's done. right. <laughs> okay, so so I mean, I got a I got a show for Justin Thoreau for just a second because Karen's been there, with him and yeah. Um, so I I. I, as I told Karen when I saw this movie, he's supposed to play an asshole. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's called acting, although, I mean, it could be true. Um, I, Karen's a bit more optimistic about that than I am. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's good that we have the false yes. ally. And I think that watching it, too, watching it, I was just thinking, oh, God, I know guys like that, you know, that think they're progressive you know, who, who think they donate money to like Planned Parenthood or something. And they think that they've, they're woke, quote unquote. And then they just have these little microaggressions, I think, as Lauren mentioned, that just prove that they aren't. And I mean, as someone who's watched many a Justin Thoreau movie and television show, if you need a prototypical entitled schmuck, I mean, he's kind of it and it works. And he wears a lot of corduroy. Um, and he sang and danced in this movie. As Karen <laughs> said when we were we were out the other day and I brought this up to her and I was like, the song and, and I'm she's like, it goes on for a really <laughs> long time. Like she just lets him finish that whole song. <laughs> I literally like I went and saw it again with my mom in the first like couple of seconds, my mom's like, What the hell is this? And I was like, Oh, just and then it keeps going. My mom's like, is this a musical? What just happened? Is stop? I was like, never. Okay. He's just going to keep doing it. Um, and it was, it's great. It serves no purpose. But I think Mimi Leader doing The Leftovers was just like, you know what? We had him sing in that show and it worked out. So we just have him do that again. But I don't think it serves no purpose. I actually think it does serve a purpose. It's a silly moment. Oh, okay. Elaborate. Well, I mean, it's a silly moment. It's ridiculous and it's over the top. And I think that that's 
that's kind of their impression of who Mel Wolf was. It's just kind of this over the top guy. He's like, Hey Ruth, we're totally buds, you know? And he's trying to be all like buddy, buddy with her. And she's there for a really important matter. And he's just playing around and not taking her seriously again. Like a lot of people don't take her seriously. And I think it goes on a little bit long, but like everything I just, Uh, he's really effective at playing a man of his time i mean mm -hmm. we i and i was thinking about that really as i was sitting here because i'd forgotten about it during the film because i was just sitting there going god he's an asshole (laughs) (laughs) but come coming so because i mean we we see him what 1967 this is he's a man of his that time men were adjusting slowly they were still coming off of you know the extreme patriarchy of the early 60s. So it makes perfect sense that you would see a fairly liberal-minded man who would struggle with certain things like issues of feminism, who he's who has trouble seeing through the shades of his period. And he well, wears and, elbow and going, and corduroy. <laughs> it's delightful. Go going going back to that going back to that one scene where he he's where he sings and dances i do think that yeah it is important in a sense because it almost lulls you into mm-hmm. this false sense of security it's kind of like oh he's funny he's kind of outlandish you know but he's supportive he's working for the aclu like of course this this is going to be a great guy and then as as his character goes on and as you learn more about him and you learn more about their mm-hmm. relationship something like oh he's a dick like and he's actually not that good of an ally he he has he has points and some of his points are valid, but a lot of them also aren't. And his, and his behavior is very much ingrained in patriarchy. So, but because you have that initial introduction to him, you're lulled into the sense of believing that he's, he's on your side. And it's like, Oh, but he's not as much on, on, on the right side as we want him to be. And, Mm -hmm. and yeah, and it is a good point that there are a lot of men that are like that. And that that's something that, you know, we have to deal with and that we have to address. And in, in a certain sense, those are also the men that are easier to convince. They're, they're a lot easier than the Sam Waterstones and the Stephen Roots uh, that are so in, immense right. in patriarchy that we'll probably never that's be able ingrained. to get out of it. Um, yeah. Whereas someone like Mel Wolf, that you can you look at him and be like, OK, so you you've you've met us part way. You've come part way there. Let's get you just a little bit further. You know, maybe we can maybe we can find a common ground here. Um, because he does think that he's woke, and he does think that you know he knows what's best, and he, he doesn't. So yeah, I agree that it's, <laughs> it's an effective performance. He's really good at playing a dick. Uh, uh, I do have to say that my parents went to see this film. And after the film, they were, they called me and they were like, who's Justin through? <laughs> and, and I was like, well, you know that like, I can't see him, right? But like, because they know all of this. They listen to the podcast and they, and they were like, yeah, but which character does he play? And I explained it to them and they were like, oh, that guy. Oh, he's a dick. So I just want to, I just want to say that, that like, even they were like, oh, we don't know who this guy is. <laughs> It's hereditary. He is a dick that I would hang out with. And I know that sounds exactly how it sounds. So just go with it. Okay, so I think this episode's gone on long enough because I'm getting into dangerous territory and making comments I should not be making in a public Wait, I just want to say I love Kaylee Spaney and she's adorable. Yes, Kaylee Spaney, uh, I maintain. Okay, so here's my theory, okay? This is a shared universe with bad times at the El Royale. And this is what 
Haley Spaney was doing before, she, and she had an argument with her mom one day, maybe over Atticus Finch, and she was like, fuck this noise, I'm moving, and then she left her house and ran into Billy Lee, and thus the events of Bad Times at the El Royale started. I haven't quite figured out where Dakota Johnson fits in, but... Well, and also Bad Times takes place like two years before this movie. Well, thanks a lot, Karen. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> I'm to pop the bubble Okay, there, okay, okay. Revision, revision, revision. Okay. So, she gets shot at the end of Bad Times at the El Royale. Sorry if you didn't see that movie. And she's not really dead. She's obviously saved and then she's adopted as an adult by the ginsburgs boom there you go there you go there you go okay (laughs) (laughs) i just want to say well i just want to say about kaylee spaney 2018 was her feature film debut she had done a couple of like shorts and student films all of a sudden boom in march she's in pacific rim uprising that is her first feature film and then she follows that up in October with Bad Times at the El Royale, and then in December with On the Basis of Sex. Like, what an amazing first year. Well, and those are, it's a, she's a chameleon because I mm-hmm. saw all three of those movies, and honestly, until this one, I had no idea it was the same, <laughs> same girl. Same here. Yeah, she's incredible, and she's super sweet. Awesome. Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Just that this movie is great, and I'm really ticked that it's probably going to get zero Oscar nominations tomorrow. I don't want to even talk about the Oscars tomorrow. Is it too early for Oscars so male? Um, We can probably start that. (laughs) It would be nice Uh to have a surprise, but I don't expect it. My fingers are still crossed for a Deborah Granick surprise or, you know... I'll be super optimistic. Maybe later. Let's make it happen. I don't want to start throwing out the term honorary game to just anybody, but I think Mimi leader, we might want to consider at some point. (laughs) We are getting really liberal with that Throw it out indiscriminately. Paul Feig and and Patty Jenkins are honorary dames at the moment. So, I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) Consideration. We're really going to have to do like an award thing. Add that to the awards at the end of the year. Like, who gets to be the honorary dame for 2019? (laughs) We'll induct them into the Honorary Dame Hall of Fame. Oh my god, I think we just came up with something, guys. Okay, so we're going to do that. Um, Anywho, you can... Okay, so uh, you can reach out to us a variety of different ways, either at Twitter, at Citizen Dame Pod, or if you're on Facebook, we have Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. Or you can email your thoughts about On the Basis of Sex to us at CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. We also have our official website, CitizenDamePod.com, where... Karen actually reviewed this movie for us. If you'd like to just read her thoughts, we also have show notes and uh, Kim and Lauren's individual columns are on there as well, as well as the Citizen Dame top fives. And if you want to support us with your money, there are two ways to do that. You can buy some merch at Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. We don't have any Army Hammer themed merch. Yes, we do. Merch. We really, we really should. should. We really need that Justin Thoreau exists <laughs> button. I, you know what? I think that might be the, the mm-hmm. next thing I make, actually. <laughs> Justin Thoreau does or does not exist buttons. And then you guys can all declare your teams uh, whether he does exist or not. Um, so stay tuned for that. I will actually whip something up, try to get something going. That's Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. Let us know that it still cracks you up that Justin Thoreau knows about this. Oh, him so much I'm more. getting a button I and know. I really hope that I like run into him on the street or something like that. Just like, you do not exist. <laughs> he just looked at it. He's, 
<laughs> and he's gonna be like, "Oh my god, are you Lauren?" <laughs> Somebody do send it to his Instagram or something. Oh my god, yes. Um, and then, of course, we have our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash citizen dame. Starting at just a dollar, you can support the podcast. Keep the lights on at Citizen Dame HQ. Uh, we have all sorts of benefits, including bonus episodes. We have our audio commentary coming up on Suicide Squad. Uh, for $3, you can get a pin. And any patrons new and existing in the month of January are going to be put in a big hat or box, I don't know, whatever I got handy, and uh, one is going to win a copy of Karina Longworth's book Seduction, as well as Bad Times at the El Royale on digital. So if you want to do that, get in quickly onto the Citizen Dame Patreon. That's, again, patreon.com slash Citizen Dame. And if you want to, I just realized I didn't even introduce any of us, but at this point, if you're listening to this episode... You probably already know who we are, uh, but you can reach out to us at our individual Twitters. I am at journeys underscore film. Karen Peterson, where are you on Twitter? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. I am at LH Business. And Kimberly Pierce. At KPierce624. So we will be back next time with our regular episode, and hopefully you all go see On the Basis of Sex and enjoy it. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Let us go around the table. And each of you ladies report who you are, where you're from, and why you're occupying a place at Harvard that could have gone to a man. Emily Hicks, hello, Connecticut. When I finished Mount Holyoke, my mother wanted me to get married. But I didn't want to do that, and I didn't want to be a teacher or a nurse, so Ah, when I... That's not a very good reason. I'm... Ruth Ginsburg from Brooklyn. And why are you here, Miss Ginsburg? Uh, Mrs. Ginsburg, actually. My husband Marty is in the second year class. I'm at Harvard to learn more about his work, so I can be a more patient and understanding wife.